Oh, yeah. <laughs> What's up, everybody? I'm so excited. I can't wait for the last 10 seconds of the video. Hey, everybody. Welcome to your Wednesday night. We've we've got the high priestess of all things hydrating, Beta Austin. So excited to have you back all the way from New Zealand. We're going to get into her work more deeply. Got my main wingman here, Gabriel, a.k.a. Slick Dissident. And uh, it's just an absolutely powerful day energetically. I became an uncle today, so congratulations to my family are in order. My sister did a great job delivering a little perfect baby boy, and I'm super excited about that. There's a amazing conjunction happening right now between the crescent moon in Aries with Jupiter, Neptune, Venus. Can't see Neptune, but it happens to be there too, so there's a lot going on, but most in, most exciting thing in this exact now moment is uh, Veda Austin joining us here on Vibrant, so welcome Veda. Thank you so much for having me and congratulations on becoming an uncle. I couldn't be happier. <laughs> I've always loved kids. I, know, I already know. I looked at his astrology chart. I'm going to be his best friend. It's clear. <laughs> <laughs> Very powerful day. So, yeah, uh, for anybody that maybe didn't catch our conversation back at the beginning of January, which I recommend they do, it's in, linked in the show notes. Uh, Veda, can you please introduce us to your work again and how people can connect with you and how they can you know, go, go deeper into your work? Sure. Well, essentially, I take photographs of water after it's been inspired um, in some shape, way or form, and then partially frozen. So I have a really short-term crystallographic method that anybody can do. Um, and I freeze water at the stage of creation. Essentially, what that means is that when you look in the freezer in the Petri dish of water, there is liquid on top and ice underneath. I take it out at that stage, tip the water away, and I photograph the crystallographic forms that are in the ice. What's amazing is that I have a collection of coming up close to 40,000 photos of water responding in an incredibly intelligent, creative, artistic manner, uh, which is relative to the influence. So that's the short version of what I'm best known for. But there's a lot of depth involved in that, a lot of tributaries, shall we say, on the way to the ocean. And you can't study water without really going deep into some other areas, which I find particularly fascinating. And they tend to form around the areas of consciousness, spirituality, um, and intuition. I couldn't have said it better myself. This is quite important to our understanding of how consciousness influences reality, how I've been describing it ever since maybe January when we talked was that there is no separation between the water in me, in the sky, in the ocean, in other people. It's all one big soup. Although soup maybe doesn't sound as sacred as it really is. It's it's quite a mystical and sacred thing. I'm I'm really excited to go deeper. It's hard for us as as human beings to because we're so visual, and yet um, we see. Hopefully, that noise isn't making any um, problems. Um, but we tend to we're seeing the world through water, the lens of water, because our eye lens is ninety nine percent water, and yet at the same time, 
we thank you, thank you. At the same time, we are literally only a cut away from liquid. We're an emotion away from liquid. We're a toilet break away from liquid. We're an exercise away from liquid. We're a few other things away from liquid, but we see ourselves as so solid. We're taught we're so much carbon. We we aren't really taught about this incredibly fluidness that we are. And so for us to say we're no different than the streams, the oceans, the rains, um, the rivers, uh, for some people that really doesn't quite register. And yet by molecular count, not by volume, but by molecular count, we're 99% water. And that's a very interesting thing when you sort of, pardon the pun, you boil it down, we are water we you can't are, even get away from water puns when you talk about water. It's baked into the language. It is. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but we're water, salt, minerals, and consciousness. And even salt is amazing because salt essentially is a crystal and it's in a cubic form. But it's a shapeshifter like water. When you put salt into water, it sort of disappears, but it makes water a liquid crystal. And then when the water evaporates, the salt is still there. Even when you cremate someone, the ashes are actually salt. So we, we are kind of made of these immortal substances that, that we, whereas water doesn't die, it, is, it will evaporate. It's always reincarnating before us. And so it's incredibly empowering, really, to begin to identify with the life force energy that, that, that flows through this physical body. I love that. So uh, we've got a lot of people in the chat familiar with your work already, which is cool. I like to think of our audience here as the they're like the black belt level class. <laughs> so we can go into some of the more interesting things to you without maybe having to cover the basics now that we've refreshed everybody. And so we actually have a question, a rather astute one from the audience. And you guys feel free to throw more in the chat as we go. It can be a, a fun Q&A and I'll get to the ones that I think are, are valuable for us. And so Nomad wants to know, do you distill water to remove the crystal memory? So you're starting with a fresh slate. What kind of water are you using? Interesting. I think that's the more scientific approach. The more scientific approach is to use distilled water because there's this kind of idea that it, it completely takes the memory away. Well, I think of distilled water as water that's actually more the observer. I like to use water that has salts and minerals in it because that is more akin to what it is to be a human body. We are not human bodies full of distilled water. We're an ocean and we're able to store and hold an information. And so I understand about this idea of, well, if you use distilled water, you're starting with a kind of clean slate, but actually as an observer, you've observed still. So it's, it's not that I think you completely clean the slate with water. You, you completely get rid of the memory because that then takes away from the fact that actually I think we as even human beings, we're storing ancient information within us. And that ancient information is always held within the water. It's not that water forgets. It's just that that water splits away from just just very much like being in a physical body and then being spirit. I think that spirit is more the observer and the physical body with the salts and the minerals is what stores and holds our, our kind of memory in this moment. 
And so when I use water with salts and minerals, what I actually find is that I get way better communications and results um, than I do with distilled water. Because if I'm if I'm wanting to investigate how water feels about something, should we say, and that may sound crazy to some people, but it's okay. When you start doing this work for yourself, you sort of start to kind of get what I mean. And so when you start to want to see what water is going to communicate to you, then actually um, it's very much more like uh, working with um, someone rather than something. So when I'm working with distilled water, it feels very much more like I'm just being observed than being interacted with. So all of my work outside of when I have used distilled water to see how it would respond is using water that tends to have natural dissolved salts and minerals in it. I hope that answered the question. Yeah. You know, while we're on the topic of salt, I, 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 I love playing with words. Uh, and I am uh, kind of a, a, a pattern uh, obsessed soul. Kind of. <laughs> 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 and while you're while we're talking about salts, uh, which is one of the three alchemical fundamentals, you know, we have the sulfur, salt, and the mercury. I'm thinking of salt just now in the conversation. In reverse, it almost it reads as telos, telas, and that is uh, defined as the end of a goal-oriented process. Mm. And that is uh, it's kind, kind of like of, the the why or the purpose and things the like teleology is the philosophy of purpose or yeah. un- underlying meaning. You could say that's kind of fun. I just thought of that on the fly. I love this, and I also i want to I want to tell you how much I really enjoy the way you speak about water. It is uh, it's enlightening just to hear your perspective. It just brings my mind to new places, and it's really really wonderful. I appreciate that. I think that so much about my work is more based on how how water has uh, kind of communicated to me, uh, showed itself to me. I think it's about relationships. So I'm one of those people that tends to be able to talk very much about things I've seen and done and experienced than remember a bunch of stuff that I've learned from somewhere else. So I tend to learn from my own experiences. And so I share it kind of only, I only really know how to share it from my own personal way of um, receiving the information that water keeps sharing. And I think one of the more exciting things for me is now sharing other people's work. And a lot of what I'm sharing now on social media is the work done by other people who have learned my technique. Because I think as people, we tend to... We tend to kind of put this work, when when you see my work, you might think, well, it must be something about her that makes us extra special. But actually what I'm really trying to get get across is that we all have relationships with water because we have relationships with nature, with people. We're all bodies of water. Uh, the only difference about the water that's outside of us is that it's in, in flow in a different way. It doesn't have the boundaries that we do. Therefore, actually, it could very well be that it can share vast amounts of information that it's picking up uh, from the ether, from, from, from you know, the um, 
the the sources like the sun and the moon and and the constellations because it's open to them in a way in which we tend to be in this physicality and this kind of body that we understand. So I think that there's a great deal we can learn and we often tend to think of water as, as so many things. It, 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 it's, it's one of those interesting concepts is that we see things outside of ourselves, even food. You know, when we're going to eat food, say there's an apple and we see it as an apple and we label it as an apple, then what is it when it's inside of us? You know, we don't tend to think about that. It's like, well, is it still an apple or am I the apple or is the apple me or has it just become a function of me? We don't tend to even think about that stuff. And so when water is coming into us, first we often have to think about how did it even get there in the first place? You know, we tend to, it's a very first world problem that we have. It's like, well, you know, what kind of water shall we drink for the starters rather than what kind, what water can we drink? But also the fact that that water, and there is, there is so much, but that water has managed to actually get into a glass in front of you. It's been through the trees and the flowers and the, the animals and your ancestors. And it's, it, you know, and of all the water in the world, that water's managed to get into your glass. And then the point is, is that we tend to think, well, what can that water do for me? But that's where we've forgotten our own sense of uh, power. And I think of power not as overpowering somebody, but really like turning on a light. And so our saliva holds uh, the last word we spoke. It holds the vibration of that. And I've done lots of um, studies where I've literally spoken a word, spat into a dish, taken photograph after I've frozen it and seen evidence that the saliva has picked up on the um, word I spoke. For example, uh, I did one where I was um, talking about the number eight and then I spat into the dish and I froze it and there was literally, when you spit, you'll see that bubbles form so what I see is imagery almost like engraved on the bubbles and there was like literally like an ape stamped into that bubble and it was so clear that when Dr. Gerald Pollack had asked me to do and suggest quite rightly that I do a survey a blind survey and that I put 25 of my images uh, together and simply write, what does this image look like to you? And it was circulated through social media, um, not by me, but by other people. So no one knew what they were even looking at. 298 people did the survey and 85% of all those people could recognize the imagery for what the influence was prior to freezing. But there were three images where 100% of people were able to recognize the image and the number eight was one of them. So it was really um, quite remarkable. When you think about that, when you think about fluids, well, the water you drink is, is coming into contact with the saliva. So that's why I always say to people, you know, to be mindful of the last words you spoke before you drink water or you eat food, which plays into the blessing or the prayer before eating or drinking. But also, you're the welcoming committee. 
So if you're consciously minded enough to even have had that thought, there is something that happens to that water that enables that water to actually go into your body and perform functions that you might not have imagined water could do, especially if you start with an intention, because intention is incredibly powerful more powerful than anybody might even know. So if you, uh, if your intention is that you uh, want to naturally heal your body using the medicine of the fluids within you, then what you might do is to, to speak a word of great deep gratitude before you drink that water, already knowing that your body creates medicine. Because in your deepest sorrow, one of the most beautiful things that happens is is that when you cry, your face has been designed in, in such a beautiful way that tears come out of your eyes and they are designed to roll around your cheeks, but you'll notice that they tend to come back into your mouth. And that's because they've been reordered and restructured as a medicine to help to soothe and heal your heart. I think we just, we've forgotten about how incredibly beautiful these fluids within our body that, that are constantly in movement and in flow, um, how beautiful they really are and how powerful they are. So um, I might have well gone off on a tangent about that, but, but I think it's so interesting to remember that within us is a mighty ocean. That's beautiful. <laughs> There's a, I've got at least three questions popping around in my head right now, but there was one comment from the chat that I felt really excited about. And so B. Hoffy says oil is also a mystery that it appears in, we can see minerals and water in nature, but oil just appears from flora and fauna, living things, you know, like the oil in a leaf. Mm-hmm. So do you have any thoughts on, or have you done any investigating into these alternate types of liquids and and how they might also work? Well, I I think that that's where you can start looking into really all life has some sort of fluid around it or within it. And so what we we see and and what I've done more studies on, I think, is around um, uh, things like egg albumin. So it's it's a fluid, but it's more of a stretchy fluid. So when you're starting to look at oils uh, from from um, from leaves and things, then you can start also looking at then the essential oils. So oil and water obviously don't mix so well. But what I've done uh, when I did a whole study on homeopathy was that. Um, some of the homeopathic remedies were in drops, so I would drop them into the water and freeze them to see what they would do. But for the ones that were more in an oil form, um, I would simply put some of the oil on a paper towel and put the petri dish of water on top of it. And it was able to pick up information um, from simply being close to the oil. And then I would freeze it and I would get really consistent and very interesting information shared that way. See, that that's one of the, the other things is that we we sometimes can think, gosh, well, how did it get through the glass? But then how do we experience anything through this physical body, this barrier of skin, so to speak. So we are water, but we are a liquid antenna. And when there is an overarching intention, that intention creates light. And one of the things I'm sure I've mentioned before to you, um, I can't imagine why I wouldn't have done, was something that I had learned 
from an American Indian indigenous woman who said she could speak to bees. And she said that she would watch their hives for long periods of time. Eventually, a bee came out and communicated to her. And somehow it said, you know, we don't mind you looking at our hive, but please don't look at it for such a long time because your conscious expression is putting too much light in our hive and we like it to be darker. And, and that really made me realize that when we, whatever we put our focus and our attention to is where we we're putting our light. And that's very important when it comes into these realms of water. You, we must understand that water, yes, it's, it's molecularly like H2O, but it's also mostly photons. So water is mostly light. And so when we're putting our attention to it, we're also giving it more light to design. And so every now and then what I've managed to do is capture water and it's just as it's just beginning to freeze when you just manage to get it at that sweet spot. And I've taken photos where I've seen a light around the wee little icicles that starts just beginning to shoot out. And that light looks a little bit like a halo. And I've discovered really that it is light that paves the way for the design of the imagery. And the more light that water has, the more, and I think light helps to communicate information. And then when you have light with water and consciousness uh, and intention, there is very, really no limit as to what information can be brought forth. But what's interesting, I think, with leaves and plants and with other things, and it comes into that phantom effect, is that there is some evidence that when you cut a leaf and then you use a certain type of technology, you can see that the leaf still presents itself as a full leaf. And in a similar way, when I've put a seed into water, removed it and frozen it using my technique, water will show me the whole plant rather than the seed. So it shows the the end result, the potential. And I think that one of the things is that water in a more spiritual area doesn't just see us as an observer or witness, but also the full potential of us and all life. I am very interested in the light aspect of this, especially when you said, you know, that, that story about the bees that, just paying attention, focusing, staring, but there's actually more ways to send light. It can happen just through the mind, just through the thought realm. Like when I do tunings for people, balancing their energy field using sound, it's not really the sound that is doing the job. Although sound is also light in a different part of the vibratory spectrum. So, you know, holding a tuning fork and pointing it at your body is like shining a flashlight at your cells. That is true. but what brings about the most healing capacity of the whole process is when something that they've ha been in the dark about themselves, a belief about themselves or a feeling that they've been rejecting is brought to their attention. And so just our mental seeing it mentally, we're not even, there's not even something physically there to see, but we're seeing it with our mind. And that is bringing the healing forth or, you know, you stub your toe and instead of jumping up and down and trying to, you're like, oh, crap, crap. You know, instead, you just put your attention straight into where the pain is. And all of a sudden, it feels a lot different. <laughs> you know, you go into it. Wherever you put your attention is like a, a flashlight that chases away anything uh, dissonant. It, it brings the harmony itself. And then a fascinating thing to just 
point out too is the uh, the druids, the ancient druids of Britain. They had a word for the divine essence called log, like L O G H, and I find that interesting because that's like log, and logs are what kindle <laughs> a light or a fire. But then that word log is also, in my opinion, related to the the idea of logos, the creative word, you know, the part of the divine essence that in the beginning God said this and then it happens, right? Let there be light. <laughs> and we're connecting the idea of words and light in some of the most ancient symbols of mythology and religion and spirituality that we have. So there's definitely something that humans have discovered about this before. Do you feel like your work is almost like rediscovering what ancients maybe had already known before? I do. And I think there's also a, a kind of a twist on that, a newness about it. I think there, that the future is ancient. But, um, but I also think that your point about light is really interesting. You know, if you look biblically, it, it says the first there was the, you know, the, he spoke the word. And, uh, and then it was like God spoke upon the face of the waters. So water had a face. And so there is this, you can take that very literally or not, but the, the word is really important because a spoken word, um, carries light and energy. And there is great power in the words that we say and that we speak. So when we become more mindful, I think of what we're actually saying, quite often I think we might say a little less <laughs> and that we just might be very more clear about what we're trying to say. But, I do think that water is very, very sensitive to words and is very interested in the energy before the word. So before a word is spoken, there also needs to be a, usually there's a feeling or a thought or something behind it before we speak. So what's before that? And it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot like art. Uh, you know, you have a canvas that's empty, but there is an intention to paint because you have the canvas. So this empty space, suddenly you start and that dot is kind of the, the word that you have thought of in a picture form. And then you keep creating more and more and more designs, which you could see as like um, art words. And, and then you've created this entire conversation on a piece of paper or on a canvas that, that, that came from what you might call nothing. So your your light um, combined with your creative ability to 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 even design, think, or um, kind of express yourself comes through this fluid that we are, and and consciousness. So I think that water and consciousness are intimately intertwined. I don't know if water is conscious or if consciousness and water work together. But what I do know is that they they are simultaneously doing something in 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 the same light, if you will. So there is something extremely potent in our understanding of nature and our understanding of life that involves the combination of light and consciousness and water. And I think the salt aspect brings in this idea and experience of the worldly life um, and is, may act as a kind of connecting point between what spirit might understand 
or or absorb in a more spiritual aspect where there is so much information available and be able to bring that through into this worldly experience where we have inspired thought, where we're, we kind of just are able to remember things and know things separate to what we're taught. And a big part of what I'm very much interested in is about people kind of being able to pull from from those spaces of the spaces where they're not necessarily taking from the things they've learned from other people or the things that they've read, but more kind of drawing from this well, this massive well of water within them and help them pull that up and see what will will eventuate from tapping into that. Um, And what I think is amazing is that, by simply using this technique or whatever technique you want to use, but within my world, the ability to use this technique and speak over water or write words or show pictures or think something or however, and then you sort of semi-freeze water and then you see responses. Um, And I believe they're responses because I've had way too much experience now in the nearly 10 years I've been doing this to say that it's not just a reaction. I don't think water's reacting to our consciousness. I think it's just responding. <laughs> Man, I'm excited to start uh, showing people some of the images you've prepared for us too. And sure. we can get to that. But what you just said, and then I also want to see if Gabriel's got anything to weigh in or ask, but what you're just saying about, or a little while back about the, feeling that comes before we choose to speak or we choose to create that to me was the biggest value of beginning to speak a blessing to my meals was that eventually if I said enough, if I said the words enough times, I started to feel the feeling before it was even time to say the words. So now I hardly even feel like it's necessary for me to go through the ritual of poetically saying grace and listing out all the things because as soon as I'm sitting there in the moment, I'm just like in here feeling it. And the same thing occurred whenever I learned Qigong years ago that I had to first pretend or like imagine what the energy moving through my body would feel like if I could feel it as I did certain movements and was supposed to feel certain things. But then eventually through the repetition of the action, then I could actually feel it and I didn't have to try to imagine what it would feel like. And at that point, I had the ability to sense into different parts of my body and feel the energy in those parts whenever I wanted, because it's like I'd restored the connection to feeling. And that's so interesting how in any symbolic system, East or West, water is always associated with feeling. Absolutely. I think it's because of water that we have this, this the ability to have these emotions the way we do. I've seen what, what we're really seeing in my crystallography and I'm, I'm happy we get to share it this time. But uh, people say, well, you know, well, well, what are we seeing here? Yes, we might be seeing signature. So just backing it up, uh, water, I've, I, I, I say, communicates in this form, in this, this crystallography, in three different types of ways. It will show a signature pattern. So, for example, tap water looks dis- disordered, uh, Freshly collected spring water tends to form what I call star hexagons. It kind of looks like a star with 
burns off each leg then the shape of a hexagon rainwater looks kind of like a, a fanning pattern with a slight curve and um and uh filtered water looks like lines kind of condensed together like a filter so i we understand by what looking at water and all different types of waters they actually have a signature pattern when we know our signature patterns then we know if water is doing something different if we don't know what they look like we're not going to know that they've changed then I say that art is the heart of water and water can design through artistic expression. But interestingly, water also is able to communicate in something that I've termed as hydroglyphs, which are essentially a 3D emotional language. And I use words to inspire water prior to freezing. Water doesn't read words, but it absorbs the energy of words and freezes into the energy of a word. So rather than, for example, I get my glasses and say, these are my glasses, and we go, okay, we will understand that this is my glasses. But if I say, well, this is the energy of my glasses, we go, oh, what is that's different? We go, oh, well, what is the energy of the glasses? And to me, well, there is an energy of, of, of sight. There's an energy of magnification. There is an energy in the glasses and in anything that we see and create. So what we're seeing in this Petri dish is the energy of a word. And so what's powerful about that is that these are repeatable. And to say I have one hydroglyph, I have to have used the same word and done that test at least 50 times and seen the same uh, symbol appear to say that I have one. But what we've discovered is that they each hydroglyph has layers of meaning that are related to the word or the energy of the word. So when you start to see them put together, what we start to see is uh, concepts so when I asked water, what is a hydroglyph? It answered me in hydroglyphs. It used the message glyph and it used um, the living glyph. So you put that together, it means living message. And what we've discovered after I have a, a small team around the world helping me discover the layers of meaning is at the tip of the message glyph, which looks like a triangle with frills on the outside with this kind of almost like it almost looks like hieroglyphs or something on the surface of it. At the tip of it, it varies. So that I, in my masterclass, I gave tips about tips. So at the end of some of them, they actually have hearts. And at the end of some of them, it's kind of open. So there is nothing there. And so what we're starting to see is when there is a heart at the end of the message glyph, it means it's an emotional message, a message relating to love. It's a loving message. When there isn't one, then we understand it means something else. It's a more informative. And so we're slowly, slowly starting to learn more and more and more about this kind of 3D conceptual emotional language. But why do I think water is emotional? Well, one of the things we're really seeing here is that in the crystallography, we're seeing an emotional state of health. I say that because when I use tap water, and I hate the word, but people know what I mean when I say the word as a control. If I use tap water, I know the signature patterns of tap water. And then, for example, um, I might freeze that water. Okay, I see my signature patterns. Then I'll let it melt. And then I'll pour that water into a little glass or something and I'll hold it to my heart lovingly for a minute. Or maybe I, I play it in a small singing bowl or something. And then I refreeze it. What I'll see is a completely changed, transformed pattern that looks much more like spring water. 
Now, it's the same water. It hasn't chemically changed, but it's structurally changed. Therefore, what we're seeing is a kind of emotion, a gratitude. See, people would be surprised to know that tap water is actually very um, responsive. Well, people think, oh, yeah, but tap water's got X, Y, and Z pollutants in it and heavy metals and contraception and all kinds of stuff going on in there. I'm not talking about drinking the tap water, but actually tap water is is given one of the worst wraps. We go, well, we're not touching that. It's gone through all kind of right angles. It's deformed. It's destructured. It's denatured. It's everything. So we tend to sort of look at it with a with a lens and in, in the way in which the old and olden times and make sure I remember to come back to this point. In olden times, though, water went from being called the waters. And when plumbing came into being in Roman times and people would see water doing something different than they were used to. Originally, we used to see water and it would cleanse us, it would hydrate us. We saw it as a living being. But then when we started to see visually with our eyes, which is so much again about how we learn and perceive the world, we saw it taking away our waste and our as sewage. And there was a part of us that went, oh, it's just water. And so then as that continued on, we kind of reduced it down to H2O. And the place and the wording, and I've mentioned this last time, I'm sure, was when a woman's water breaks, we say her waters broke. It's where the language remained as a sacred body of water. And so, you know, we've put a really bad rap on the tap water, which we're so in our, in our first world country, so lucky to have. Um, and and so then we, we look at tap water and we go, I'm always like, well, what can I learn? What can I learn? And what I see in the structures is that the tap water is so sensitive to um, attention, and and especially good intention attention and that it is it will it will change its structures very easily to show us that actually it's very grateful it's kind of like a sick person that's been told maybe that they have something uh you know they're not feeling good or maybe they've been told they have a disease or something and uh, somebody comes and gives them a hug and tells them something nice and gives them makes them some food and we always would feel grateful and a bit happier even though we might still be unwell but anyone in the healing community, natural healing, would say that an attitude of gratitude is a fantastic place to start to heal. And so because we see structural changes in tap water, which is municipal tap water I'm talking about, which is very disordered, and we see it create order from from intention, from all these different things, So, but it isn't yet changing chemically. The emotional change, I think, is so powerful. I think we have begun to understand that the physical issues and ailments that we that naturally arrive or or not from car accidents and things, I'm not talking about that, but but come out of our body tend to come from unhealed emotional trauma. And they've manifested affirm that. And, and and so being able to see that structurally tap water, which is very much like someone with issues, can improve and structurally then look like spring water through attention, I think it's very encouraging because, again, we have more water molecules in our body than stars in the Milky Way. We are so much water, and we have all the attributes and powers of water. And, you know, you touched on something I think is interesting, is that, you know, you were talking about how some people have some blocks 
and, 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 you know, they have emotional blocks. So I think of that as ice. Okay, I, I think we have all the different stages, the ones we know about and probably the ones that we don't know about because I do believe there are many stages of water we have yet to discover because we really do know so little about this anomalous thing that we call water that um, that I think we have these stages. We have gas. We know we have gas within us. and We have the liquid stage. We know that very well. But I also think we have an ice stage. And when I used to do healing, I had a, um, a wellness center some years ago. And when someone was in, really had something they wanted to let go of, but they didn't really know how, they felt like they couldn't overcome it, I would have them lying lying down. Sorry. Brian, there's someone here. Sorry. Um, oh, no and, problem. Life <laughs> and I, happens. It, it does happen. Um, I, I might, Brian, would you mind shutting the door, please? Thank you. Sorry. I think it's, I don't know what the guy's talking about. Um, anyway, so when what I would do is have them lie down and I would say, so just imagine that right now in this moment, the area where you're feeling that discomfort, which you kind of can feel it within your body, just imagine that it's ice. And then I want you to imagine that right, my hand is very warm and I'm holding this area, say it's to your heart. Um, some people it's often in their throat, but, but say it's in the heart and just imagine that your body is heating, heating up. And that you're starting to feel the sense of peace, this sense of wellness. And just imagine right now that it's really he heating up that ice, which sometimes might be like an iceberg for some people, but even icebergs can melt and start really feeling and feeling that, that ice starting to melt and melt and melt. And anything in the melting or freezing stages is fourth phase water. This is a liquid crystal. This is this place where the state of creation can happen. And so imagining that that area is melting and melting and slowly melting away, I would tell, uh, I would get them to tell me when they felt that it had moved and that it was melted. And I said, would say to them, okay, you know what's going to happen now is all of that water is going to start moving out of you. And when you need to go to the bathroom, realize that what you're doing is releasing the melted water that was holding trauma that you did not need anymore. And every one of my clients where I used that technique would say that they could not believe how much they were urinating afterwards. They said it was as if they'd drunk 28 glasses of water and they didn't realize they'd done it. There was this <laughs> release that they didn't even imagine where it came from. Veda, but when I'm doing uh, tuning with people, that'll happen all the time. I'm almost... More more sessions than not, whenever we deal with whatever the biggest thing hurdle for them to get over energetically is, they'll all of a sudden they need to go use the restroom. But one time I got even vomited. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that when we think of our traumas or our stuckness, you know, they, they can seem so sticky and we can be feel so kind of like, oh, my God, I don't know how to move through this. It seems so big and scary. But if you kind of look at what we're made of, again, the, the, the salts, water, minerals, consciousness, and you go, okay, well, if you just even mentally think about the stages of water that we are and imagine which one we, we want to be or the one we want to use, I think, I think 
it's more unnatural, actually. It's one of the reasons I'm so glad that my freezing technique is so short because water, when it's frozen completely, is in a state of suspension. And I think it's natural for it to want to melt. I don't think we as humans are designed to hold on to trauma for long, long periods of time without it then creating some issue. I think we are designed to melt. And I, and I think that, that, that sound um, is a wonderful way to help kind of, you know, bring that out of us. So because we're in flow, we see water coming into us and release, you know, leaving us. And it also expires from us when we sweat. Um, so, you know, water comes and it goes within us. But I think that there is the spiritual aspect too, which is always with us. It's alongside consciousness. I think that that is the observer, never in judgment, kind of like the witness that works with the consciousness. And I think that it's through that essence water, should we say, that we actually are able to leave the physicality of the physical body where the water that is always kind of hydrating us and moving through us, we're able to be in a spirit aspect, observe the physical body whilst it's still alive and also enter back into it. But I also think it's the way in which we transition out of the physical body upon death but I, and I think the reason we can come back into the physical body is because we have electrical charge. Electrical charge is not woo-woo. It is a really interesting thing that can be measured by heart math. But even just breathing means we're putting water in the air around us. And so we are in water whilst we're sitting here right now in the air. We don't tend to think about it because we can't see it, but it doesn't mean it's not there or happening. And that water is attracted to our electrical charge, which kind of gives us this um, network, this web of information that we can both receive and give off of ourselves. And so within that, um, I think that this essence water um, is able to leave upon the electrical charge and also come back in. So with the people that I've spoken to have had near-death experiences, one man's heart stopped beating for 25 minutes and he wrote a book about his experience. He had a sense of rising and observed his body. After interviewing a number of people who have had these near-death experiences, all of them said that they felt a sense of rising, they looked down upon their bodies being resuscitated, and they, all three of them said, I hope that person's going to be okay. So there was like no attachment to the physical anymore, but there was the observer, which makes sense if water in its more spiritual aspect is the observer. But they were able to come back because there was still some electrical charge. So even when a person's heart stopped beating for 10 to 12 minutes, there is still what's known. Is there some activity, not the way we might understand it, but it's known to be there's some activity in the brain for at least 10 to 12 minutes after the heart stops beating. But I had Dr. Gerald Pollack on my second to last masterclass, and he told us something really interesting. He, One of his um, students uh, did a study um, on chicks as they were developing in the egg. So there is a way in which you can crack an egg and actually have the fertilized egg start to grow and you can watch it without it being in the actual egg. So they stopped the heartbeat of the chick at three or four days and they wanted to see if the exclusion zone 
area of the water, which is a kind of water that's inside of our cells. It's um, Essentially, it's like a battery. So exclusion zone or easy water or structured water is essentially where um, the water, it's water that has a negative charge and it, it's pushing out the positive charge. So it acts like a battery. You have a negative and a positive and it itself propels through a tube. It's one of the ways you can identify this easy water, very rudimentary explanation there. But they wanted to see if, if, if this easy water was going to drop with all the other vital signs when the heart stopped. And there was a drop, but it didn't drop all the way to the bottom. When they brought infrared light into the picture and added infrared light and put it near, they noticed there was a big leap in the exclusion zone water, and it only slowly started to go down when they took it away. So it kept moving fluids for approximately an hour and he said we may need to look at when a person's actually dead based off this type of study that so makes that, so much sense because there are stories of people who are clinically dead or medically pronounced dead and then like an hour or eight hours later they just wake up in the morgue and and get up yeah i've heard that you know i've also heard some interesting stories um that kind of relate to the cerebrospinal fluid where uh for example, I, I know of a story of a, of a young lady who had gone through to university. I don't know what you call it in America, but in New, New Zealand, we call it university. I think yeah, we can call it that. We do that. Okay. Yeah. nineteen twenty or something like that. And she was getting some award or something. Anyway, she, she was in a really bad car accident. And when she went to hospital, they discovered that she only had a brain stem. She didn't even have a big brain. And they had no idea how she could have possibly functioned in the world without a brain. How is that even possible? Because surely that's what creates an, our entire way of being able to function properly in the world. And there have been stories where people have had partial brains, but and all these kinds of things. And I talked to Dr. Mauro Zapatera. He was on my second to last masterclass. He's a Harvard doctor. He is saying that, um, that the spinal fluid is the portal to cosmic consciousness. He, he was saying that when we're asleep, the spinal fluid it literally is bathing the brain and it's taking away all of this, this kind of negative things that, or whatever we were sort of bathing the brain at night. It's, it has its functions, but it moves much like tides coming in and out. And, um, it's it's so sensitive. It's ninety nine percent water, and it's so it's sensitive to all your even your breath. So your breath, when you are doing just a deep breathing, it can move that spinal fluid. And and it, he got into this concepts of tantra and kundalini and the significance of this water in the spinal fluid and how it developed. And I'm probably going to botch this up, but I'm going to give it a little go because I do think it's important. Um, he was saying he was showed in my talk about as the um, when the egg is fertilized and as the embryo is starting to grow, obviously it's in a sack of am amniotic fluid. And as the as these cells divide and start to kind of move in on themselves, the the spinal fluid is the amniotic fluid of the mother. 
And so we have this incredible information, and I think that ancestral information is actually held in the amniotic fluid and is shared that way. And we had a fascinating conversation in the masterclass I just gave a few days ago because I have um, a colleague of mine, uh, John, who's been taking photos of water almost as like much as me. And um, he started working in um, the uh, using egg albumin. And so egg, that's just basically egg white. But we there's two parts to the egg white, this gloopy gelatinous part and then this thinner part that's a lot like saliva. When you when you freeze the thinner part and you let that run out, I've identified that there are six patterns that form in healthy free-range eggs. But caged hen eggs can only form two of those patterns. What we identified, though, is when you put a caged, um, a free-range hen egg and you surround it by caged hen eggs, and leave it overnight, what happens is that there is healing by proximity. The middle egg, the free-range hen egg, doesn't change structurally. It's still beautiful. But all the caged hen eggs sitting closest to the free-range egg start to look just like free-range eggs. The ones further away have improved, but not as significantly. And I've done that test twice. Hello, baby. Wow, that is amazing. That is so amazing. So encouraging. And I've seen the same thing when water tap water sat, sat next to spring water and left overnight is that the, not only does the tap water improve structurally, but so does the spring water. It's as if water's actual purpose is to improve things and to share information. And when you're looking at it on this really amniotic kind of like primordial area and arena, it makes sense, right, that things should improve rather than degrade because things don't work out so good for, the, for, for in nature when, um, when they're not as strong as the other animals, for example. So it, it's interesting because it's not depleting the free-range egg and it's not depleting the spring water at all. In fact, it's almost because it gives it purpose. There is even more strength to it. And so when we start to see this and just bearing all of that in mind, I've done thousands of pictures of egg albumin from goose, duck and chicken eggs. And I've seen the same thing in all of them. Now, bringing it over to John, he's done all this work with chicken albumin. He lives in, I can't remember, is it Utah where it gets really cold and he's able to freeze outside. So he's able to photograph the freezing as it happens rather than using a freezer. So a lot of my information has come from that, knowing that, okay, I know it's not the freezer blowing in a certain direction that we're getting these designs because those designs occur also naturally when you see them freezing outside. So he he has his own chickens and his own ducks. So he has a relationship with them. Now, when you consider that I do think that ancestral information is shared through the amniotic fluid to the embryo, What's interesting with John is that he has a relationship with his chickens and his ducks. So what he's been doing is getting the amniotic fluid or the the egg albumin and freezing it. And so he sees all the patterns we've seen before and they're beautiful and there's the six patterns, great. And then he will let that melt and then he will bring it out and he's used the same egg albumin for about a week. And what he's seen is that when he's feeling particularly connected to the work, particularly connected to his chickens. So before I say what happens, understand that 
water has a signature pattern, but so do people. And that that signature pattern of people can change when we have a huge change of perspective. But uh, yeah. John's signature pattern is what I would call the creation hydroglyph. It's very distinctive. He must have got it well over 60, 70 times now. I always, we, we talk about it a lot. And I've said, I think that's your signature pattern, John, you know, the, this creation glyph. He's a biodynamic farmer, so it doesn't surprise me. He's always creating every time he, he plants a seed. And so he's, he was, we'd often talk philosophically, you know, what does it mean and all this stuff. But what we saw in the chicken egg albumin is so amazing because I know, because loads of people I've taught how to do this, we only ever see these six patterns. There have been no other patterns. With John's eggs, he was seeing the creation glyph form when he's feeling particularly attached to these, to the, this, this process and his animals. So what we're seeing is it's almost as if John's signature pattern is informing itself as the ancestor into the amniotic fluid, and we're seeing that. It's remarkable. What, he's, what, what I've just said, you know, is actually a really big deal. And yes, we're seeing imprint, imprinting. Yes. So we have a, we have kind of a, a wonderful little idea that we love. I mean, we make light of it, but I think it's probably the most profound and miraculous concept uh, that could do so much healing for the world. And it corresponds with your work uh, beautifully. And that is the, uh, it's called placenta phage. And this is the idea of the mother eating the placenta to transmit all of that genetic ancestral energy, uh, the information, all of the benefits and the full immune system. And I'm, I'm quite sure that what you're talking about is runs right parallel with this idea that we, uh, that we love, we kind of make light of it. Uh, we just, you know, uh, I think I don't, I've never been on a podcast where I haven't brought up the placenta. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting because we have some cows down the road, and and I I just think I love cows, and I've made friends with them, right? And they come running down to see me, and they're just lovely. But an interesting thing, I've, I have a number of friends that that are farmers, and cows are, as we know, to be vegetarian. They eat grass. Sometimes they like, you know, apples and stuff. But when they give birth, the mother will eat the placenta, and they're vegetarian. Yes. You know, it's very interesting when you look in, at nature too, this, in that there is an eating of the of the the fluids and the placenta. And so, you know, in the Maori culture here in New Zealand, uh, what what we tend to do is plant the placenta, and there is sort of this, a great respect that is given to it in the planting of the placenta, especially where you. You will plant a tree over the top of it. And so, you know, you look at a placenta and you, you look at the way it's designed and it very much looks like roots of a tree and like a tree. It's quite remarkable when we, when we see, you know, what fed the, the child and it looks like the tree of life. I have a glyph called the tree of life glyph and you know, it, it's a very potent glyph, but it looks very, very much like the um the the placenta so it's held in high esteem i feel in in various different cultures um it's it's kind of 
interesting how we tend to just throw it away as something we don't need anymore or ha- has no more we label value. it as toxic waste. Yeah. Which actually what happens is then it gets used in something like cosmetics or um, pharmaceutical products. But I wanted to point out how one of the things that's been most fascinating to me as a mythology and religion and uh, language researcher is how seemingly everywhere in the world that you look and every tradition that you turn the rock over underneath it is the mythos of the ark and how the belief was that there are cycles of time where after you reach the end of a large cycle of time, everything goes back underwater. And the only thing left in creation is this boat, which isn't really a boat. It's symbolically a boat, but it's actually the generative, the male and female generative powers put together. And so the Yoni being the hull and the phallus being the mast. And then the third person of the Trinity or the Redeemer or Savior rides this boat and then recreates or restarts humanity, replenishes the earth. After, and even in the Genesis story that you brought up, the matter was previ- prior existing. <laughs> you know, the face of the deep was already there. The waters were already there. And so it makes me wonder a lot of things. Like, first of all, that symbolism of the boat and then a new world or a new life after that, very reminiscent of the idea of the placenta, because that's like the vessel that you ride into the world on. And while you're in the womb, that's just, it's just you in the primal waters and this boat. <laughs> and yeah. then there's also the notion that, uh, well, you guys go ahead and respond to that. I'll hold off. I love, I love pointing out that the placenta is the only meat that there is that is birthed out of life. All other meat is a as an is a sacrifice, but the placenta is a gift. It's it's extra. It's a bonus. It comes from life, and that makes it uh, a sacred form. And I mean, the word cannibalism has so much weight and baggage and weirdness around it. But I think part of why it is so weird, the word cannibalism, is because it has a sacred root. It has something that is a truism that we've uh, a lot of people have maybe never even thought of. Uh, So I just love to kind of bring that up, that it comes from life and it's unique in that way. And let me throw a few other things on on the table, a few more logs on this fire. (laughs) The Latin to Sanskrit letter change between W and M, which also exists in other languages when you go writing from one to another transliterating their alphabets you get with water it becomes mater which means mother and so it makes me wonder if maybe there was some knowledge that the ancients had regarding the primordial waters of chaos as they're known that perhaps even all other matter in some way is created out of water like that water not only can take on the cymatic patterns and create these messages that are holding the intention or the communication being put in, but possibly in the life force energy and the light, but also possibly in some mysterious process, we don't understand that water actually becomes the other forms of matter. And that's just a out there theory, but you know, this idea of the waters of mother are so it's so underrated and we treat it, you know, treating birth like it's a medical condition. Right. And that's no good. Like I had a client just this week who, (laughs) He, I found immediate birth trauma, right? Like at the very beginning of his biofield or like the, the outer edge of his bubble space. And 
Apparently he had been born with his umbilical cord wrapped around his neck. So I don't know if he was picking up on mom's energy of lacking self-confidence and feeling disempowered, uh, lacking self-worth more than self-confidence. But then that's compounded by the fact that she actually didn't feel like it was safe to breastfeed him. We found that out as we were going into his biofield as well. And this creates this expectation for him in life that he sh- he's going to be rejected <laughs> by the feminine. He doesn't get the girl, you know, and, and especially because of the beginning of life, that was the very first experience he had was he didn't get mother's milk, which is, again, the waters of mom. And we are able to very clearly, with a few other pieces in the puzzle, show how show him how this was why Crohn's disease developed for him. It wasn't because there's something wrong with his body. It was because his body was giving him information in the form of this condition to try to help him go back and and connect to the very beginning of life. And maybe even this is an older ancestral pattern that's going through this amnion or amniotic fluid. So we can't really overstate the importance of those first moments of life and how the vibe is, you know, like that's everything, even a hospital birth with all the bells and whistles that they bring into the equation. If the parents and the, and maybe the grandparents or whoever's there is in this coherent, anchored, rooted gratitude and love, even all the things the hospital does are, that's not even going to mess up the baby, right? We look at all that as like barbaric and grotesque, a lot of us, and we wouldn't want to bring our kids into the world through the hospital, but then that leads us to like losing the whole point by being judgmental to people that are going to the hospital. When in fact I was born in the hospital, it turned out all right. (laughs) You know, maybe I had some things to work on, but we all have that. So my point being that it's really, really about the energy we're holding. Cause as you described with the eggs, the whole principle of the universe that I think humanity is starting to wake up to is that this isn't an entropy field we're swimming in that whenever harmony and dissonance are put together, harmony wins. You put a bunch of metronomes in a room together and you set them all off at different times, come back later, they're all clicking together in rhythm. So whatever the coherent pattern is, other patterns adhere to the coherence. And so we have a lot more say in whether or not things are going to be cool and fun and good and loving here or not. And the external boogeyman and all those stories are excuses that are it's time to flush them (laughs) you know like because we are in way more we are in power if we hold our if we hold our energy in our own vessel in coherence uh, nothing there's nothing else to it we got this yeah I, i think it's so beautifully said also i would say that with the kind of tree of life that i said looks like the placenta in the hydroglyphs it means wholeness and what's interesting is that we usually see two other glyphs on either side of it. So it looks like the trunk of a tree with the branches. On either side, there are these two ovals, and the o- o- two ovals on either side are also a hydroglyph, and the two ovals essentially um, mean breathing. And so when you put them together, the tree of life, which means wholeness, really is um, breathing wholeness. Which, which is extremely interesting because it's a very powerful visual and has a lot more meaning than I think we understand yet. And I think because there's so much complexity and so much depth to it, like we have to feel into it. We have to, to almost remember how to feel what it is to understand something rather than in always thinking, thinking about what it means intellectually. So, um, you know, I think there's a, a great deal of 
potency to 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 everything you've just said. And at the same time, I think sometimes it can be scary for some people because we um, we're so extremists as people. You know, we love to see the worst and the best of things. We're so I, I mean, whenever I post the worst and best of something, which I don't do that much, people will go, "Oh my god, I've got to share it! I've got to share it!" See, look what happens here, and look happens if you do this. If you hate someone or you love someone, or you know, this or this or the other. But 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 it's interesting because when you when you do this extremity. We often forget that that actually there's so much stuff in the middle, and the stuff in the middle is often what makes up most of life. And so I, I think that that sometimes we can feel like even if I as pregnant mums, you know, I, I see a lot of women, and sometimes they're pregnant, and they hear about this and they they know, okay, I'm a hundred percent now. They feel a hundred percent responsible for this baby inside of them. So even if they have a bad day, they're like, oh my god, I've destroyed the baby's day. They're going <laughs> to bad, and like I've I've done something. But actually, also, I believe each soul has its own design and purpose and strength. And babies are very much also connected to the divine if you will when they when they're born they have both their, the fontanelle is open which allows for this incredible information flow to still be um kind of accessed and as it slowly closes up yeah my nephew's head is all squishy right now huh? <laughs> and then that also is is you know it's it's like um uh, Dr. Mara was talking about that squishiness, you know, literally you're squishing, you're feeling that cerebral fluid, that, that spinal fluid in the brain. And so the fontanelle being open is like this, this connection, this like spiritual connection that they got the word have. font in it. Mm-hmm, exactly. That's a really good point. Nice. So, you know, and as that starts to close, close over, then, then we're very much more you know, we have the spirit within us. We're not as connected to to it in the way we used to be, but then it's inside of us and up to us to remember to connect to it. And it's and, and so I believe we can all heal. Uh, it's kind of more my point is sometimes we can think that because we've been very traumatized and I, I you know, we've all had traumas that, that actually we have within us all of the power to heal. And no matter, no medicine, no pill, no nothing that we actually take inside of us is healing us. Not nothing. It's our body that's healing us. That's and we true. have these signature patterns. They come from all different kinds of things. Signature patterns um, of thought, signature patterns of a medicine, signature patterns of things we see, you know, seeing something creates a signature pattern within us. And if we see it over and over and over and over again, it, it really ingrains as a pattern within us, but we can see other things. And so we don't, we don't have to be sort of, there's no point where we can't change how we think. I think a change of perception can change our lives completely. And and that I think is so important because always we're looking for the outside to heal us. I think it's important to know that there are support people. There are things we can do to support and give us an environment where we feel like we're ready to heal. Yeah. And and they're really, really important and very, very significant that we've managed to get ourselves to a place where we 
give ourselves an environment or the people we need to help us get to a point where we heal. But we heal. We're doing it. This incredible, beautiful, sophisticated, fluid system is healing. And and, and I don't want to ever t- let that be taken away from because, I mean, I healed my body too. And I know it's true. I, I, I was told I could never have children because of the scar tissue on my on my organs after being in a horrendous car accident where someone tried to kill me on purpose. And we went under the seven-ton truck and he died immediately. And prior to going under the truck, he looked at me and said, if I can't have you, no one can. So for me, after coming out of that, and having to have eight surgeries over the course of 20 years and being told I could never have children by three doctors. I had a child for every doctor that told me I couldn't. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, we saw the evidence and uh, man, lucky to have yeah. you as a mom. That's great. But one of the most beautiful things that came from that was that when I was sharing some of that story with a friend the day before the second big Christchurch earthquake, which I was in, um, my son Rama, who was nearly three at the time, was like he'd never heard the story, and um, and he was like as children do, sort of sneaking, listening, like as you know, and and he heard the story. And when I finished talking to him, telling my friend, he came over and he jumped up onto my lap and he said, "I remember that, mummy." He said, I remember the window wipers and the tires and I came down out of the clouds and I went like this and I saved you. And when I knew you were okay, I climbed back up the ladder into the clouds. <laughs> wow. That's, oh, I feel that. Yeah. That is awesome. What an angel. It, well, that's it. You know, and, and we think we're alone. I don't think we're alone at all. I think we have an absolute team up there wishing us the very best. Yeah. Wow. I, I call on that team all the time. And when I do tunings, you know, I look at it, not like I'm doing something to heal them, but more like with a massage, you can't reach your own back. So I'm helping them see the parts of their energy field that they are unable to see that they kind of hid from themselves, but they're doing it. And even when I brought up that client that I mentioned with the wrapped around his neck with the umbilical cord when he was born and not getting mother's milk and developing the condition of Crohn's disease later in life. And there's more steps in the story, but that wasn't like he was the victim of his mom. It was that he came in to work on that, that type of feeling and to show the way for the, all the waters of all creation, you know, like that's, what's amazing is we get to can, the healing process never really ends, no matter how healthy your body gets, because there becomes a level of it where you're just, if you're you're working on universal, you know, coherence, which it's an balance is just a continual act. You know, you never that doesn't have. There's not a point where you reach the static stasis part. Uh, and the only thing that might be that we could consider actually static would maybe be the idea of the creator. Maybe that depends on your theology. But I do find it interesting how the uh, ancient Etruscans and the Druids and the uh, Norse people, they had either the Iser or Aesir, depending on how you pronounce it. But the more correct pronunciation from the uh, Italian Etruscan side is definitely Iser. So, you know, Ice is right there, you know, and then there's the, uh, the other, the original phonetics that led us to the name Jesus. 
is I-S-E, Issei, or Issey, or, or ice. You know, it's right there. It's very interesting. Yes. Oh, yeah, I think we should. I think people are would like to see some of your images before we go to much longer in the tooth here. You know, if we could see a few examples of that, I'm sure people would be excited about it. But, man, I'm just. The energy you bring to these conversations, Veda, it's oh, something you. else. I'm feeling it. So can you see the screen? Yes, we've got it up. Okay, good. So these aren't mine, but just to give a little a few people some ideas of what really inspired me to start the work. So. And, and here we have some extremes again, which Monsaro really did show is like you fall and thank you. These are flash frozen um, samples of water after having these words put on them. But on the right, you see the work of a friend of mine called Laurent Costa, and he's using the same uh Micro type of microscope and f- same photography as Masaru Emoto. So he's flash freezing um, a small amount of water and looking through the microscope. But what he would do, he would actually smile at the water sometimes before he froze it. He didn't want to experiment on water because he believed water was his spiritual teacher. So he wanted to just let water express whatever it wanted to. And he was finding that the images that he got, and you can see them, there's their heart and the smiley faces, you know, he was getting these so much. He also got geometries, but he got a lot of imagery. And when I saw this, I saw an artistic expression. So it made me feel different than seeing a geometry. There was something about it that made me smile when I saw the smiley faces and knowing that that, that he was looking at these through the lens of a microscope. But there was a man by the name of Thomas Hieronymus who was a radionic engineer, and he went into a Parisian meat market and observed that the freshly placed organs of an animal, this was on a very cold day, um, appeared to be affecting the way the frost froze on the glass behind where they were placed. For example, the frost would freeze into the shape of a liver organ above a liver organ and so on and so forth. And his hypothesis was there seemed to be some kind of life force energy still emanating out of these organs and he believed that there there is such a thing as um, sonic signatures. So each organ has its own kind of blueprint. It's kind of like a cymatics within an organ that holds a blueprint of the organ and its memory is within the water. And so he believed that because the memory was in the water of the blood, it was sharing information into the air and the air was freezing into the form of the blueprint. So I found that really interesting and he was seeing it with his naked eye. And so I started to um, want to investigate if water could store information um, for myself. So I held a petri dish of water in my hand um, and I was going to project a thought and I saw a bit of fluff floating around. So I put my hand in to tap out the fluff, consciously thinking, I wonder if my hand will have any impact on the water's memory. And so I put it in the freezer with the peas and the broccoli and everything and I just left it. And this was back in the days when I froze water completely. I haven't done that in nine years. Um what was fascinating is that years, hours later, I came back, I, I, I held it up to the light and I took a photograph. And you can see how big the dish is here. It's quite large. Half of the dish uh, really was this hand that you see on the right. And it's quite unmistakably a hand. 
And I even showed my son who didn't even know what I'd done. And I asked him, what does this look like to you? And he said, it looks like a hand, a a creepy hand, but it looks like the x-ray of a hand. And then I went to the ocean because I thought, well, if any water is going to be naturally informed, it would be the ocean. Nervously, because I thought, well, if I see something that's relative to the ocean, then maybe this isn't just some random thing. So then I, um, I, I have this, I took this picture of the seawater that the thin layer that I froze. It looks feathery and different because it's, it's salty rather than fresh water. But you can see the outline of the fish here with its tail and its perfectly round eye with a gill and its fins. And that's really when my freezer became my most used household appliance. And I started using all different kinds of what I call inspiring influences because like Laurent Costa, I don't want to experiment on water because I'm seeing it respond. You know, this is a conversation. This is a relationship. I don't want to control it. The moment I try even to think about doing that, it doesn't work. So uh, that's an interesting thing to remember. Um, so then this is this is helpful because this is the difference between the old technique and the new technique. The new technique only takes about five minutes and 20 seconds, depending on the freezer and the freezer setting and things. It's where you have that liquid on top and the ice underneath. And I think it's important to see the difference because when you when I look back at my old work, I'm amazed the imagery I got given that the water was so frozen over. Because after looking in the freezer for so long, I've observed that water freezes in three layers. The first layer is this layer over here, which I call the first freeze. The second layer is kind of another layer of ice that's on top. And then there's this liquid in between the two, and then slowly that freezes. So I think I may have a video to show you where someone actually was able to put a camera in the freezer and watch it and you, so you can see the whole three freezing things that I'm talking about. But uh, this one was where my son Rama, who was named after Lord Rama, the, the god, the Hindu god, um, we were talking about um, how Lord Rama has always got a bow and arrow, and so he projected the thought of an arrow into the water. So this was from a thought of it from a child and he took this photo and he did the whole thing himself and you can see how three-dimensional how metallic that arrowhead looks um, sitting in the bed and it's you'll see in the examples I give that there are colors that come through that is because the new technique the layer of ice is so thin that uh, you see all the different colors of the background shine through and I like to play with those because I worked professionally as an oil painter for years and I see the world as from an artistic lens but I'm also a researcher so I'm very interested in seeing things from multiple perspectives so I wanted to see, since I knew that water liked to design um, an imagery, and it was seen to be picking up people's faces, so I used different faces to see if there was some kind of facial recognition um, possible. So this is an iconic photo of mine where I used my friend Wendy's photo. I put my Petri dish on top of her photo for 30 seconds. I give that as a number for, for people because it's not too long and not too short. Um, as you were saying before, you know, uh, that idea of when you're sitting at the, at the table, you kind of feel everything you've already said multiple times and you just get into that space immediately. 
this work is like that. The more you do it, the more relationship builds. It's like water knows what you're going to ask before you ask it. So I don't need this protocol of 30 seconds anymore. But when you're learning it, it's quite nice to have some kind of guidelines. So you can see that it designed her face quite clearly. So then someone asked me if I would use. Let me just say in the chat, Cody pointed out, maybe this is the original x-ray technology (laughs) after looking at the, uh, the first one with your hand there. Interesting question. Very interesting question. Um, So someone asked if I could use Sadhguru's face. So you can see here also the side of the dish. So you can see that it's quite macroscopically huge. Um, I was, I've always been interested in Greek and Roman um, history. And so I, I, I use all kinds of things. What's interesting here is that I overfroze the sample. So you're seeing my process in the making, if you will, because it, it took time for me to develop my technique and to, to learn about it. So I overfroze this, but you can still see the beard and the mouth and the eyes and, and the hair. It's just a little more overfrozen. Um, so here are just some other examples of my work. And I think I may, I, I, I don't think I could share my screen last time. So I'll go into some of them. Each picture has its own story. Um, over here, I asked a pregnant lady to drink some water, leave me some whilst thinking about her child. Then I froze it. And not only is the outline of the um, fetus the same, kind of um, at the same development as her baby was, but it's very much, there's a lot of light around it, which is quite unique. Below here, it looks like an etching of this Schnauzer dog, but I had gone to a cafe and um, I saw this this dog bowl and this Schnauzer dog was drinking from the bowl. And I thought, oh, I wonder, you know, what that order would look like. And I actually asked the lady at the cafe if I could have a takeaway cup for the dog bowl water. And I, I did my best to explain why. So she didn't think I was a complete lunatic, but she let me. And it was <laughs> that's awesome. You can see the imagery. Um I, this is an interesting one because I put my thumb in the water, removed it and froze it and it created my thumb. But at the thumbnail, you can see there's a chip. And about three hours after I did this, I chipped my nail in exactly the same place. So that was really, really interesting. This one here is when I had been chopping onions and I just collected some of the tears and I, and, and into a, um, dish of water I already had. And so it's interesting because it froze into the shape of my iris. I've now done tests on various different types of tears. Emotional tears look very different than chemical tears and, and tears from cutting an onion would be considered chemical tears. So it's quite interesting the differences uh, between them. Um, and my son did this one with Batman because back in the day he liked to watch like different shows. And so, um, he would put the, he put the dish of water on the couch beside him whilst he watched it and just froze the water. And you can see it designed into the shape of Batman. So kind of crazy and amazing. Um, and, and the list really goes on. This is just the tiniest little handful of examples, um, of imagery. And now we're getting more and more other people sharing their images, which excites me a lot. Um, I really wanted to see what might happen when the opposite of freezing happened. I really had no idea whether boiling water could show imagery in its stages of movement. And that might that that seemed 
almost like a preposterous idea to try, but I had, I, I mean, I wanted to, to give it a go anyway. So at that time, um, I was like hovering over the saucepan, trying to take, to clean the screen, to take some photos. And so in the saucepan, actually, we were both these images. Um, so I used to be a dancer a long time ago, but I also had um, an issue in my neck when I was taking the photo. And so what was interesting, and I was also wearing a long dress when I took the photo. So if you see the outline of the head here and the arms and the dress here, it definitely looks like a woman wearing a dress. And over here, it very much looks like the head of a skull with the vertebrae of the spine here, even some teeth in here. And so I was really flabbergasted to see that water in its boiling state could even create some kind of complex imagery which which you don't know is there until you until you go through the photos later and often that's the same with the ice pictures you you look at the ice pictures with your naked eye but when you zoom in on them uh, when you've taken the photo you you can really see so much detail in there so my freezing technique um I talked about how water communicates in three ways. These are the examples. This is These are in blocks of four. This is the signature pattern of spring water. This is the signature pattern of rainwater, this fanning pattern with a slight curve. This is the signature pattern of uh, water that's gone through a filter, and this is the signature pattern of municipal tap water. Here is the art of water. Now, not all of these are mine. I, um, like I said, I'm excited about sharing other people's. Um, here we have the um, the nail clippers, and it might seem like why would anyone use nail clippers as an influence, but that wasn't intentional. It was just that the nail clippers were actually right beside the Petri dish uh, of water and water picked up on it. So often we see that, especially if there's no intention behind the um, the water uh, prior to freezing. And I, I, I encourage that because then water has the choice to do whatever it wants. And it can be really surprising. Um, I didn't take this photo. This was taken by Laura, who works at Dr. Pollack's lab. Um, and I didn't take this fo photo either. So someone else um, who learned my technique um, got this really cool duck. So very interesting. And then we move over here to hydroglyphs. And there are 64 examples, although I can't easily zoom in on them, but I think I have some others that I can show you. I'm very um, curious about seeing some of the hydroglyphs. Cody, sure. A yeah. very good, astute question. You wanted to know if there's one related to magic or manifestation. I do have a, a, a magic um, a, a glyph that means magic. And it is a line with an empty star on the top. And the empty star itself alone is a hydroglyph, which we've now discovered quite a number of layers of meaning. Um, it means, it means um, imagine to imagine. Um, it means uh, light and it means guidance and it means hope. So it's quite a, a magical um, uh description of of that word magic with that just has the line with the empty star so hexagons are the kind of um real indicator that water is in a healthy state so if you are lucky enough to get a dish of water and you see a giant hexagon in it like this then you know that you're working a with either an extremely pure and healthy state water and by pure, I mean more of a pure in its essence than pure as in distilled. And, um, and, or 
you have you have healed or the water has healed itself from another structure to this. So something has happened to tra- for it to transform. Um, my sister has a bath, um, an outdoor bath down in the South Island where she lives and it gets very cold. This this star here, the star is about three feet big. It's really large. So it's, it, it, you know, it's really nice to be able to see them in nature. And this is a, a, an interesting one, which is in alignment with um, the work of Theodore Schwenk, who wrote a book called Sensitive Chaos. Up here, he's using the drop picture method, method where you essentially you're photographing a drop as it splashes and it shows you the health of the water in the kind of complexity of the splash. So this is water that's come directly from the source of a spring. This is from a little bit further away, and this is far away from the source of the spring. Over here, there is water directly from the source of a spring. I can't help but see placenta and umbilical cord in that. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, that's the beauty of the work, is that you start to see the connectedness in so many things. Um, And you see the slow degradation of the hexagon shape um, the further away it gets from that original source. But what's interesting is that this eventually turns into ferns. It turns into grass shapes. It starts to take on the shapes of the things that it's nearby. Um, this is a, hopefully this will work because if it does, or I can't quite see a thing for me to play, or maybe it will work and maybe it won't. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Um, uh, if I come out of it, I'm, a, I'm not familiar with the way in which we share on your type of screen. So I don't want to come out and then not be able to come back in because everybody's left the house. So I don't have anyone to help me. So maybe <laughs> I'll, share, I'll share that with you and maybe you can share it with your viewers. Yeah. If you have a but, link to it, I can pull it up. Yeah. I can just send it to you. Um, we'll I'll put that in our telegram group later on. Okay, cool. So this is an interesting one because here we see the signature pattern of tap water. But here we have the, the the same tap water that's then um, been held and uh, in a loving, calm way for only one minute. And you can see it's completely structurally changed. And this is what I'm talking about, seeing the energetic state of health. Um, same thing here where you have disordered um, municipal tap water at the top. This one is after it's been played in the same singing bowl. So you see the same patterns from the same singing bowl. Um, and this is after it's been filtered through silk. So it's quite an interesting one where I have spent quite a lot of time in rural parts of India. And uh, there was a time when I went to um, one of the villages and I saw a couple of ladies holding a, a silk sari underneath um, one of the big water pumps. And one lady was like, there was the three of the ladies and one of the ladies was pumping the water and the water was being filtered through this silk sari into a bucket. And I was asking about it. And the interpreter said that um, they do it because it helps to physically do the filtering, but also it, they were saying it helps the heart to filter out the things that we don't, that, that don't serve us. And she, there is this interesting thing where even Rudolf Steiner talks about the significance of filtering water through silk, which is actually where I first ever heard about it from. Um, and when you look at the, how the silk war, the silk worm is creating this cocoon to transform. And so it's very interesting, but it, Curious it makes me also think of how at the end of a river you have silt 
and that that granular pebble type stuff is actually a sort of filtration system of its own. Mm, that's a that's a interesting and silt and silk sound very similar. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, and so also, though, when you I just want to say, too, that I think that there may be what you're discovering may lead us to someday figure out that maybe the reason why languages have so many similarities across the world is because there's something innate in us that is giving us the idea that this sound means that. I mean, with ma, we all know what ma means, right? That's just baked in. So maybe there's more to it. Well, I think there's always things more to it. Um, so what was interesting is that the, the similar thing happens, not exactly the same, but a similar thing happens when you use um, woven wool and like pure wool as well as linen. So those are the three materials that can be charged by the sun and that water when filtered through them has a dramatic change, which is really interesting to note. Also, when I talked to jo Jerry Pollack about this, he was saying that water, even when it's sitting beside silk, um, it can build exclusion zone. So that's really interesting. Um, so what happens when I'm angry or frustrated doing crystallography? Well, it's never, never recommended. It's not that water is ever judging me or us. It's simply that water doesn't resonate at that frequency. It's interesting, though, because it tends to um, thicken. And so you would have become a little bit familiar with my work is that, you know, you have this light that tends to shine through because of the thinness of the, of the ice. So even though I did exactly the same thing as I always do, if I come home and I've been in traffic all day and the kids have been like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And somebody's asked me to do some crystallography for them and I feel like I should do it. If I'm not in the right frame of mind, water just behaves in a completely different way and it doesn't design. And so it just shows me that it's not in resonance with that frequency. But when I'm sad, it's not that the water degrades. It, it sort of reflects me. I see these sad faces, even when that's not been my intention at all. And I'm not using my emotion as an, as a, the inspiring influence. It's just that I'm trying to do crystallography, but I'm feeling sad. So water shows me and reflects me quite often as sad faces. So I, I think it's important that it, you can see it's still got the ability to design, but it's showing me something. And when I see the sad face, I actually feel like I'm being seen and that actually helps me to move through that. I had a very profound thing happen on one of my beginners workshops a while back where a lady got two of the same hydroglyph. Interesting, the living glyph it is it's the living is its most predominant meaning. It looks much like the um the, the fern hexagon I talked about. Its secondary layer of meaning is death because of course water doesn't die. It's actually more means transition. So death is simply another word for transition um, of life to water because water doesn't die. It's only ever in its one of its phases, it, it, its transitions. So I think that that's a really important piece. But this lady got both of them, and I explained what I just explained to you, and she started crying on my on my call. 
And she said, you know, that's so exactly what I have been going through. And we didn't expect her to to so openly share, but she said she'd been trying to decide whether to live or die because she didn't feel that she was, she could trust anyone in the world anymore. She couldn't trust anything or anyone because of so much that's happened in the last few years. And she said that she felt that water saw her and and showed herself to her and she felt heard water is the first mirror yeah and 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 we were all in tears because she felt so much more alive than she'd ever felt it was extremely powerful um i know you mentioned you you wanted me to, to kind of talk about this so i am so um on my website i hadn't gone into all of the detail about this. It's a little bit short, but I think, and I need to add this um, because it shows a lot of hope. So the top photo up here is of spring water that I collected myself. Um, I exposed it to a 5G tower by going to the tower and actually putting it in the closest proximity to um, the, the the whole box, the whole, all the um the, the whole, what do you call it, the whole tower itself. And I left it there for 15 minutes. Um, and then I took that. And so just so we know, I photographed the water first. I then let it melt. Then I took it and left it by the tower. And then I brought it back and I froze it. And it froze into this very, very disordered, thickened state which is why it's important to see that the, the angry frustration thickened the water. Well, 5G um, energy thickened the water and sort of took away the patterns that we would normally see. So the thickness isn't something we see in tap water. Tap water just is disordered. The thickness is, is rather unusual. So when I let that freeze, uh, sorry, defreeze and thaw, and then I froze it again, and then we get a new pattern. Then when I froze it again, we start to get, this is the kind of turning point where we start to see some movement coming back into the uh, these crystallography. Then I let that dethaw, and then I froze it again, and we start to see somewhat, which looks a bit like the Tree of Life glyph, actually. And here are those circles on either side that I talked about, which are the breathing uh, glyph. So we're starting to see, okay, it's breathing now. It's becoming whole again, right? That's exactly what the meaning of this is. And over here, we're seeing the fern hexagons, the shape of these fern hexagons again. And that's the water come back into its original state. So what we're seeing here, I believe, is more shock. Uh, it's like a reaction. You know, it's, it's a response to the exposure of the, um, electromagnetic frequencies. Um, and so it, it sort of thickens as like a protective wall, but it's really encouraging to see that there is a change that then happens. And, um, and that's very, very obvious, um, in this, I have done this more than once and I've seen the same things happen. So I think it's interesting. So, I mean, we can talk more about that if you like, um, but I, I think that it's really, um, really, a, sorry. Uh, I want to comment on while we're on the topic of the towers and the effects of the 5G and, uh, and uh, uh, 
uh, false reality check just made that comment there. Slides about the- down, Veda, so you can come back to the screen and see us. Okay. Uh, perfect. Wow. Hello. So, um, something that's been on my mind in this presentation, uh, we're on episode number 78, which is a very special number. It's the number of cards in a tarot deck. Hmm. And like I said, I'm a, I'm a pattern nerd. Uh, and, um, the word tarot phonetically tarot is watcher. It's an, it's a phonetic anagram. And also tower is a phonetic anagram for water as well. And so all of these things are where information flows uh, in a very profound way. And so I love all of, you know, this, this work we do with correspondence and uh, seeing how these patterns convey more than what is first seen on the surface. And here my dog comes running as I'm talking about patterns and connections. Uh, but I just wanted to say that, that uh, that's the second hermetic principle is correspondence. And so looks like, sounds like, is like, relates to, uh, is, uh, is, I think, very foundational to having a, a magical worldview. And now my buddy wants to play with me, so I'll shut up. <laughs> I always think it's confirmation when animals come over. They kind of just always know, don't they? And they also can see things that we can't see. And I think that that's one of the power of, of, of things we can learn from the natural world and from like our, our, the cats and dogs that we love. Um, you know, I, I spent a little bit of time uh, with a friend who, who has a dog that would, she said, you know, he would just stare at the wall. It was like he was always looking at something and we, they had no idea what the dog was looking at. But the law, I saw the dog. It was intently looking at something. And I think that comes into something I find fascinating, where there was a man um, by the name of uh, Gennady Krokolev. He was a, a scientist, but he was also a psychiatrist, Russian. And he worked um, in an uh, institute for people who had hallucinations, like a mental institute, uh, for 20 years. And he saw that they were having hallucinations, they were having terrors, they were, you know, they were seeing things that we just couldn't see. And he had a lot of compassion for them. And so he, he, he wanted to see if there was any reality in what they were viewing. So he made this, these, these, he got these goggles and he took the lens out of the goggles and he got this camera called a um, Zenith camera, this black and white camera. And um, it has a box thing on it on the end of it, and um, and so he attached the box thing to these glasses, these goggle things. And um, what he did is, when his patients were having a hallucination, he would basically be photographing their retinas as they were having a hallucination. And he did this with over 200 patients. 117 of his patients were able to confirm that the image that appeared in the black and white camera on film was, in fact, what they were seeing. Now, interestingly, this was repeated by more Russian scientists within the last 20 years. And they used the same exact setup, except rather than these goggles that he had, they used a scuba diving mask without the lens and they used someone who could remote view rather than a psychiatric patient. 
And what they did is the scientists stood behind a wall and would hold up a number or they would hold up a shape. And as she tuned in to seeing either the number or the shape, she had a very clear picture in her mind's eye, which is a powerful statement on its own. And so then the they would take the photo. And you were able to see the number one and and, and the, the triangle shapes in the photos that they took. They they put together a documentary. It's in Russian, but there are some, one with like um, English sort of dubbed over. Um, I think it's called Thought is Material or something like that. I think I actually have um, some pictures of that to show you. So they had two hypotheses around it. One was that there is a secondary layer of consciousness, like a, like a, another realm of which is real and they are seeing it. And it can be picked up by the sensitivity of the camera, much like orbs. You know how the, the camera and videos can pick up orbs, but we can't see them in the moment. But I think that animals can. And or the brain sends information to the retina of the eye, which then creates it into like um, imagery, and that is projected like a hologram out of the retina through light. And that is in certain uh, certain situations can actually be picked up by a camera. And I think that this is relative to a degree with my work and that if we, although with my work, I'm not needing to have a really clear vision in my mind, the relationship is coming from the heart rather than the mind. And I think that's even more powerful. But I think it's important that we see that have been things done that have some relevance to this work and that if thoughts really are creating it's almost as if we're walking around if an animal can really see all of our thoughts it's watching so much more than we realize um, and we're not hiding we don't tend to hide ourselves away from our pets we're very real in front of them um, and yet they probably see us <laughs> way way more um, as we are than as we might show others so it's a very interesting thing I just think what you mentioned about sight is so important how, unless I'm mistaken, the rods and cones of the eyeball are like pointed inward. You know, where I think that there's a primary sense and maybe that primary sense has something to do with the, the water within and the water around that people can learn blind sight. Children can learn it very easily. Even if they're not blind, blindfold them and they can learn to see the room around them. I've experienced that while meditating and my eyes closed, having 360 vision of the room around me. I've had out of body, you know, I'm not in a body and I can see things and hear things. So to me, it makes more sense that we are experiencing some kind of primary vibration or flow of energy. And then that's being just divided and distributed to the various sensory apparatus of our body which more than being actual detectors of the external environment are more like this symbolic information uh, complexity that gives life more of a richness and depth than just sort of all the flavors at once un undifferentiated, you know? Yeah, it is. It's an interesting one. We always say we have two worlds, the one we live on and the one we live in. The one we live in, we generally experience it through senses. Like when we eat something, we're eating it 
we're tasting it inside of us. We're listening. The sound's coming in. We're seeing through the lens of the eyes. It takes information into the brain. We actually see with our brain. And uh, we're touch. We're touching things. But the sensation's coming into our body. So what do we ever actually experience that's outside of this physical body? And I would say that one of the things would be that we can observe ourselves We have this ability, like you were saying, to kind of like see all around us in different ways. We're able to be the observer. And I think that brings even more credibility to the concept, which I hold, that water in its more spiritual aspect is the observer. In Maori, the word for spirit is wairua. Wai, W-A-I, means water. Rua means two. The two waters meaning the physical and the spiritual waters, which are held within us, both both of them. And so there's an idea that the the, the spiritual waters are actually the watching waters, the waters that observe everything with no judgment at all. And I have have seen this, which is I sort of kind of touched on it, but when I interviewed people who had had near-death experiences, again, they felt the sense of rising. Now, what rises? A gas rises. We only need to watch water boiling to see vapor coming off. It goes upward. There is the sense of rising. So if spirit and water are indeed interconnected so intimately, this idea understanding that we know so little about water and we've discovered only four different stages, the liquid, solid, gas, and then a type of gel or plasma. There are over 300 different types of ice. For every different type of ice, there are subtleties. The secrets are in the subtleties. We know very little. Scientists don't even know exactly where water came from. They think it either came from asteroids or meteorites that seeded the earth or it's held within the ringwoodite, within this crystal, inside the Earth's mantle, which has then come up after there be there were earthquakes and various tectonic plates moving and things like that. So we I want to I want to say something on the on the different types on the many different types. I want to introduce a new Hermetic principle to this foundational seven. I want to. I think we should uh, initiate nuance. I think that nuance should be a hermetic principle. And then we can have eight day long weeks instead of seven. And then we would have a nine month calendar instead of 12 and things would be uh, completely different. We could just redefine the whole world based on uh, adding nuance to the seven. Uh, I think that would be a very, very interesting thing to do. And, and I think, you know, um, we start to, to learn about ourselves through all of the things that these conversations bring up. What I love about sharing the work so openly is that people are so clever, you know. We're so clever. We, we, we all think differently. And I always say to people, if you can just focus on something you're super passionate about and you do that, like maybe even if it's just once a day and you do that through the crystallographic method, we're going to learn so much about so many different areas. Like this one lady reached out. She said, I really want to do something. How can I help? And I said, well, what are you passionate about? And she said, I, she works with pregnant mums." And I said, well, why don't you, and this might sound a little odd to some people, but I mean, if we if that's fine. So I've photographed lots of different bodily fluids and I said, why don't you, if they're open, 
um, get them to use urine and you can use my technique using urine. So the urine is basically just water and minerals and um, it's also interacted with the baby. I said you could have mothers having conversations and seeing what their babies are saying through the hydroglyphs that form in the urine and why don't you try that? So she's on a mission doing that. So this is one tiny little area of where people can take the work. I um, I was talking to a man by the name of Gary Cook, who's quite well known here in New Zealand. And he um, he has this wonderful little device that he can then put onto plants and hear the plants, the plant, the songs of the plants, should we say, the sounds and the songs of the plants. And he's done that with water as well. Um, and what's interesting is that he said the kauri tree, which is our native New Zealand tree in New Zealand, um, he said it has a sound. And he said that there was a time when many whales uh, would come and migrate and they go past the uh, this certain area. And they said he said that when the whales make sound through water, it isn't just that whales far, far, far away can hear them. Actually, the sound travels past the water over the um, over the beach and into the rocks and into the forests. And he said that that there was a conversation between the whales and the trees. And he said that the whales would call and the trees would answer, the kauri tree would answer, and they would have a conversation. So he's recorded the sound of the kauri tree. And he's, uh, in, I don't know when this is happening, but in the next few months he's going out into the oceans playing the sound down into the water to see if the whales will come. I can't, I can't. I hope I can be on the boat with her. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, that brings a crazy synchronicity, a wild synchronicity forward. I've, have you heard of um, dolphin birthing centers? Um, where the dolphins understand that the woman is pregnant and uh, helping her to birth the baby? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And apparently the dolphins will circle the mother and sing to her and that the vibrations inform the child. And they say that children who are born from these methods have, uh, they say that, well, of course they're smarter, they're blessed. They're, you know, the chosen ones, <laughs> but, but they, they, uh, the scientists say that their, their brain folds are deeper, that they have a more, uh, a deeper brain fold, uh, imprint, which is just, so magical. And I was just talking about that today. And here you are talking about bringing the whales forward with sonic yeah. water magic. You know, you know what? Maybe we don't all agree with the idea of evolution as described, but there is something interesting about human beings that are many interesting things about human beings that lend to the idea that in some way we came from water that, yeah. you know, an example, and there are many examples, but one example other than the dolphin example you just gave and how much easier it is to give birth in water apparently never done it myself uh how our fingertips and our toes wrinkle in water and we often look at that as like oh i'm wrinkly time to get out but actually that's an ad some kind of an adaptation for traction and for grip and there's many things like that that our body adapts to being in water uh in ways that unless you spend a lot of time in water you might not understand yeah, I, I talked about that in my last masterclass. But interestingly, at a certain point in gestation, the um, the embryo of a dolphin is almost identical to the embryo of a human. 
Um, you can Google it. I think it'll come up. Um, it's extremely interesting how similar they look. I think um, I, I don't think I shared it, but I, I, I planned to at some point. Um, but yeah, it's it's extremely interesting. Man, that is really remarkable. Uh, and that you we're talking about it on the same day. Uh, this morning I was on with Over Sharon, <clears throat> and she was the one who shared a video of the Dolphin Birthing Center with me. And so it's just beautiful that it's coming up again. Yeah. Uh, there yeah, we go. Look at that. So there's there are photos even where it's even more similar. And when the when the embryo is just slightly less formed than that, where they're virtually identical, it's wow. it's fascinating. And you kind of then see. Um, our, I'm very interested more in our commonalities with nature than our differences. I think that's why I get such a lot of information coming through because I'm not trying to pick it apart and and see what's different, but really to see what's the same. Um, and we we had an amazing last masterclass. I, I um, we were talking about the sunken lost cities and Lemuria and Atlantis and Bermuda Triangle and all these things. I don't know if you know about my grandmother. Did I tell you about that at all? I don't um, think you told me about your grandmother. No, you're just yeah. full of interesting things. We need to have you back. <laughs> well, my um, my grandmother, her name was River Sprint Bentham Green. And she had remarried, which was quite surprising back in those times. You really didn't get divorced, but um, and it was it was frowned upon. But she'd got divorced and she'd remarried, and she was from the UK. And they flew over to um, the states, and then they flew over to uh, Miami, I think. And from there, they she took a plane called the Star Aerial, and they were flying to uh, Barbados for their honeymoon. But the star aerial went down over the Bermuda Triangle and was never found. And I never met her. It happened in 1949 on my uh, on the uh, 17th of January, and my mother was informed on the 18th of January that that had happened, which happened also to be her birthday on her eighth birthday. And so uh, I remember Mum telling me about my mum. And, and, and all of the story about, sorry, her, her mother. And I used to imagine that she was in some kind of Atlantean place that, that she'd just kind of gone through a tunnel or something and something had happened. But I had this, um, uh, the, this old, uh, newspaper article about the star aerial and how they'd sent all of these, the Navy and everybody out to try and find the plane because there was no reason why it should have disappeared. Um, and uh, and I put my petri dish of water on top of the article, and I shared the image that appeared, and it looked like uh, a vortex. But it was quite a remarkable picture. Um, and so I also shared in the masterclass the image that water showed for the word Atlantis and the word Lemuria. Um, and I talked about the sacred place that I found in New Zealand, which um, which was so synchronistic because we had a man by the main name of Tim Moon come on. He really was one of the stars of the show for me. Um, he is a archaeologist and he worked on the Bosnian Pyramid and he was the project manager there. And he told us so many interesting things about it. Like they, um, they, they found all of the tunnel systems and 
um, it, it complete, it's so huge. And to imagine, he said it was something like 25,000 years old, man-made. So, so, and, and dwarfed the, um, the, the, the pyramids of Giza. And, and he said that, um, they found lots of artifacts and they found this one really interesting artifact that he was very enthusiastic about, which they kind of named as the heart stone. And it was kind of because it was in the shape of a heart and it was in, in the pyramid structure in one of the tunnels. And, um, it had this, uh, this, this pattern on it that was designed on it, which was the circle with the circle inside. Like this, is it called the circumpunct? I never know if I'm saying that correctly. So it was, yeah. a, it was like almost like a vague outline of what looked like a figure just above it. And they were so excited because this was clearly man-made and they were like, oh, and they, so they took it to the lab. What was fascinating was that he showed us the, the, the picture of the stone, um, something like three hours later and the image had disappeared. It had gone. It just completely disappeared. They sent it away to get tested, and all they could know is that it wasn't painted, but they refused to do any more testing on it. They just sent it back, and they refused to do any more testing on it. He said that made it more interesting. And then they they were worried. They were so worried that, that this picture disappeared that they went and they buried it back where they found it to see if, if it would come back. But they didn't know if it was because it needed to be there longer or whatever, or if it was some kind of technology, which he believed it was. He believed it was a technology, um, but they couldn't make it come back. But they had lots of photos of how it looked beforehand. They also had one of the most remarkable images that uh, on video of this of this drop within the cave system doing something unbelievable. They filmed it, and uh, the, the 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 drop got longer, and then it started to move. You know, if you imagine a chrysalis and something moving inside the chrysalis like crazy, the water drop was doing that, and then he man- they managed to photograph these orbs that were coming out of the drop, and in it as it was like transforming and moving. And what was interesting also that he talked about was that. Um, you could hear, uh, and it was picked up through all the technology um, that they had. They had so much technology they were using for this pyramid. Um, there was a sound that that this ticking that happened every two minutes. He said it was because the pyramid was trying to switch on. He said what pyramids we think uh, would were placed in a specific area over time. These 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 lines these these kind of um, if you want to call them ley lines, and because of earthquakes and things, they they move the the earth slightly, and with things just even slightly out of alignment, can shift the way a technology, an ancient technology, can work. But they also found these large stones which were uh, had a certain amount of iron in them. And obviously they found blocks and things like that. So they were cut, cut and, and you could see these blocks were man-made. But um, they, there were these odd-shaped kind of like iron, um, orangey-colored stones. And, and what they found inside of them was this uh, uh, like a um, 
kind of an empty space. And in the empty space was a man-made crystal, crushed crystal paste that had been pasted on the inside. And what they believe is that these were actually a kind of um, natural battery that the ancient peoples were able to use. There was water throughout the pyramid. There were these steps that went down and there was Easy electricity if you were crushing that crystal. That's what he was talking about. They used different energy. They were using piezoelectricity for technology. And, um, and there were lots and lots of other things he went into. But what was fascinating is that I, and it was too long to get into, but I just discovered this, this very remote place in New Zealand. And it just so happened, literally, and I can go and get it for you. I have a stone that I asked permission if it kind of wanted to come home with me. I have an affinity for stones as well as water. <laughs> and, and so, um, you too. And so, uh, I, I, I brought it home. Well, I have this Lar- Laramar right here, Laramar, which uh-huh. is from the Caribbean, but people associate this with Atlantis. Yeah, well, it's the dolphin stone. I have a, a beautiful Laramar as well. That's gorgeous. Um, and, uh, but what was so exciting to me is he showed that circle thing design on that ancient old stone. And I went and I got the stone that I have in my room that's, that's from the top of the South Island, the sacred place, which has all kinds of incredible things on it. Um, and I maybe even have it on my phone, but I could just go into the, the room and go and get it. But I wanted to um, show it to him. I could, like it's on my phone here and it has the same, um, the same pattern Whoa. on it. You can see, and it's extremely interesting. You know, um, with the pyramid question and how those giant blocks got where they got, and mm-hmm. <laughs> it's often been put forward in circles that I follow that they had some sort of technology to liquefy the rock or grow the rock right there. And I've never really been able to figure out how that might work. But back to that question of, is water the primordial matter? I mean, water and matter are basically the same word philologically. And is there some way of deriving or condensing out of water to turn it into a stone right there where they want it in some kind of a mold? I really wonder about that. Or is there a way to take pre-existing stone and make it more malleable, more liquid, more fluid? Uh, you know, I, I, very good question. What you're saying is so interesting. There was a, a guy, a, a kind of uh, new, uh, some years ago, a, a really a genius, but just kind of very reclusive. And I haven't heard from him in years and years and years. But he told me something interesting once, which I still think about every now and then that you reminded me of. He told me um, there'll come a time, he said, when technology is more understanding. And he said that you can take an entire lake of water, and he said you can condense it into um, like a small square that's like the size of a sugar cube. And he said then you can take that sugar cube and he said you'll be able to take it to a place where there's no water and release all the water. And he said we just haven't caught up with it yet. He said but it is absolutely possible. So if that can happen, then I, I, I think that, you know, when you start looking at water and you start looking at hydrogen, hydrogen is just, you know, just all throughout the universe. And you look at this incredible power of hydrogen. So I, years ago, I, I wrote a book, which I never published, called Soul Archaeology, which in my last masterclass, and I think it, 
it was it was by far my most popular masterclass because I think we touched on topics that people just are really interested in, where all the mysteries kind of there's so many mysteries um, around ancient civilizations and ancient technologies. And I said something, um, I said a lot of things. I had an entire year, I call it the year I thought I was going crazy. But I, I wrote a book, a thick book uh, in there. And, um, and yeah, we're, the- that's another, we could have a whole show on that because you talked about some of that last time we had you. But yeah, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt, but yeah, I'm very interested in the year anybody goes crazy. Because <laughs> I think, you know, we, the, the mystic swims in the waters that the schizophrenic drowns in. And we're out here, we're very schizo friendly, you know. <laughs> I don't even think that's a bad word. I see that as like, might as well call it synchro, like seeing connections and correlations, seeing how everything is everything. And yeah, to the materialist, to the person living in separateness, lock them up. They're, they're a danger. They're a menace. They don't, they're, they're living outside of reality, but actually that's the real reality. The everything is everything is the, as real as it gets. I, I remember spending time in India and the person, a person who's sort of just dancing around and talking to themselves and stuff might be considered crazy here, but people would say, oh, he's just in his own bliss. You know, he's one with God. And, and, and so it was a completely different way of viewing what people do and how people are. <laughs> um, but basically uh, a small part of what I wrote was that there was pyramids were built for different reasons. And I said, talked about one type of pyramid, and I said that um, this pyramid inside of it had these kind of um, stone vats, and these vats were filled with completely saturated salt. And these ancient people had a higher electrical charge than we do, and they knew how to yield it and wield it. And they went under the pyramid and came up through a tunnel, and then they put their hands as a collective, men and women, into the water until they started to hear a sound and they knew exactly how long to be there for how long they wanted this, this energy um, to uh, cultivate for. And then they would leave. And then what would happen was that the, the, the salt water would catch fire, but it wasn't the kind of fire that we know fire to be. Uh, it was the kind of fire that looked like lightning and then the capstone was made of a different type of stone. It was uh, separate. It was a kind of quartz. And the there was a the, the the energy, this lightning would get caught up in the uh, vortex of state of the pyramid, and it would create this kind of funnel moving like a DNA strand of energy of light too, which would eventually get to a point where it would push the capstone off and go up into the um, into the sky. And it was one of the ways they prevented um, uh, um, like debris, like asteroids and things from hitting the earth. They u- were able to utilize it for power. Um, and the capstone would glow for weeks afterwards. And so I thought, oh, my God, what am I talking about? This is nuts. And then I ended up Googling about this man. Um, I've got the link somewhere um, because I shared it on my masterclass who was looking for a cure for cancer. And he he got this salt water tube and he used kind of microwave um, uh, ele- um, energy and electro- so a kind of electromagnetic energy 
directed at the salt water. And lo and behold, he got this flame, but it, it, um, it behaved like lightning. And so then he went on the news, they talked about it and about all the free energy that that could create. And then somehow he just sort of disappeared. But the, the news thing is still, is still up and you can see this. And so it was saying that it's the hydrogen that, that separates and burns. And so I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not going so crazy. That's an ancient technology. They understood that. I can see now through our science and discoveries that this is actually a possible thing. There's different ways we get this energy, and salt water is a really big piece of that. I think studying the things we are made of is going to give us the answers of the ancients. They understood us. They understood the powers that we hold and were able to utilize them external to the human and also with the human. I have also had Dave Zed come on and talk about energy propulsion and quantum physics. And he said, you can talk about all the spacecraft you liked, but you need to look at the spacecraft of your own body and look at the way in which we really are the, have the ability to do so much more than we imagine with this physical body. And, um, and, and we just don't see half of what's going on with us and all the energies around us. So, um, and, and what we're really, and how we can create this Merkaba. So, which is, which, um, Drunvalu McElzadek talks about as being kind of like a human spaceship. So, you know, there's a lot going on, uh, there. And I, I've, I think I mentioned this last time we talked, but I found more than one ancient philosopher writing about how God is a liquid fire and describing mm. this fluid fire in a way that made me think of what we call electricity, but perhaps that didn't exist as a word before that. And we had a recent astrotheology show with David Matheson where we went really into the mythology of the thunder gods like Thor and how the constellation representing that character in the sky, Hercules, and all the many variations worldwide of this same thunder god, uh, that that constellation is also uh, dual signifier that if you drew it a different way you get this vortex or whirlwind or this primordial churning waters of chaos and so the thunder you know the son of thunder is right up there with also the primordial chaos very fascinating but we've gone a bit over our scheduled time we're just having so much fun i don't want i want to respect your day and i know you, you know it's getting on in time so we'll just have you back again if that's okay i got a lot more slides we could look at and we could always talk about more of that that writing that you channeled and it's just such a pleasure to witness your flow you know the flow state is a big key word for us and everyone in the chat is feeling it <laughs> i'm sure people are just like cheering and crying and goosebumps and everything i've loved it thank you so much veda no, it's always my, my pleasure. And, and not I, to rush you off the screen, you know, if you wanted to close out any thoughts or give people parting words, I'm all for that too. Well, there's, there's always, there's always more to say. I mean, it is, it's, it's like there's endless depths of learning and I, I learn every day, really. But I, I really would love to just say thank you to all the people that, that take this seriously, that actually really start to um, realize that there is so much new things that are coming forward in the world and that there is a lot of hope and that every time we, we even look in these Petri dishes, we're seeing water in many ways as it sees us. You know, like these little mini worlds in there. And, and it's, it's something that is so simple. 
And it's a lovely kind of meditative thing for people to do as well. And you can even eat the ice, the crystallography afterwards. And that's an important piece that my children taught me. And I, I'm, I'm sure that I've shared before, um, but we've discovered more and more and more now that when you eat the crystallography, when you've used a word, a healing word, and you keep eating the crystallography afterwards, remembering that it's the energy of a word, We've found that people. It's like that prayer thing where the feeling just comes without the words eventually. Yeah. Well, we've, we've, through the eating of the ice, we've started to find it's helped people's headaches go away, um, insomnia. One lady had, um, uh, severe reactions from, from, um, from the COVID injection. And she, like, is better from doing it every single day using words. She used the word connection for months. And then she found another word. The word kind of just comes out of you. It might not even make sense with what you're using it for. But, you know, my children would eat the ice after seeing my crystallography. And so, honestly, it's just such a simple, easy thing to do. And it's so, so powerful. I think that, you know, People talk about the ice caps melting and all of that, but actually this is the stage of creation, the melting and the freezing. It's like where anything can happen, you know? <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, it's that liminal space where all the magic is at, the transition. Yeah. So yeah. I have I have two thoughts I'd love to share before you go. Um, one is, uh, so I do a lot, I'm working right now on uh, the Enneagram and it's a uh, one through nine uh, personality matrix. It's a really beautiful thing, and I'm seeing it in many lenses. Um, and it has uh, three quadrants, three trines, uh, feel, think, and act. And I have associated these elementally as well, the feeling grouping, the feeling trine being very aquatic and water-like, right? Uh, the thinking being more air uh, and ethereal, and then the act being more physical, more like uh, body or grounded or earthly. Um, and then uh, in my work, I've come to realize that there is uh, the uh, the quadrivium, the four elements of the quadrivium uh, are hiding in there as well, where music is in the feel or the, the aquatic, the water-like, uh, math, mathematics are in the thinking, the ethereal, and then geometry is in the body, the physical, the act, the instinct. But there's a fourth uh, uh, pillar of the quadrivium, and that's astrology. And I see astrology as kind of bringing it all, the whole of, of this picture. But now having this conversation with you, I'm thinking uh, in astrology, elementally speaking, would be like the fire, but uh, it's transcendent because it's part of the whole. Well, now I'm starting to think, what if it's ice astrology? <laughs> well, seriously, though, because many of us, especially in the audience, are people who are no longer subscribed to the cosmology offered by mainstream science and by NASA. Yeah. You know, and then the weakness of that position is that, well, we don't have a model. We don't know what it is, but we get everything they give us from space is like demonstrably computer generated or in some way altered. And so we really don't know. But 
you know, we, we, I just put it in the camp of, um, agnostic about the realm and what space is and mm-hmm. all that, but there is a constant thread through the ancient mythology, through the ancient wisdom tradition of the waters above. Right. And right. I find that honestly, the more I learn about nature and the more I learn about the fractal of life, it makes more sense to have water than a void above, you know, you know, you know something is coming up that, that Kalani Souza touched on. He's an indigenous Hawaiian elder. And, and often, you know, we hear this, this word, the father, the father, the father as God. Well, one of the things that is very, very, very important in, in ancient and indigenous belief systems is to honor the, the grandparents and the great grandparents and the great grandmother was the ice. And so, you know, you start to think about the lineages and where they came from. And it's a very interesting piece when you start to add that in. And I'd love to learn more about the Maori because that word is mar, mar, which means sea. And it refers to the, you know, Mars being before it was called the planet. You know, we had many traditions where the top God was called Mars. And that was the all father, not like just the all father who is also a woman. You know, we go into these mythoses with the magnifying glass and you find out that Zeus was male and female. That that applied to all of them. Odin was wearing women's clothing. You know, I, I did a whole thing on people that some people believed that ancient Troy was actually ancient Atlantis and that Helen of Troy a lot of people don't realize, um, was birthed out of an egg because Zeus came in the guise of a swan and uh, she was actually born out of an egg, which is quite interesting when you look at what Rudolf Steiner talks about ancient Lemuria and how it was actually like a muddy planet rather than a solid planet and that people kind of were in a very different form and shape and um, and that they started started to were, were kind of could impregnate themselves, and that they actually at one stage um, came out of eggs, and eventually they came to a point where they were able to procreate as we do now, and that we had both sexes within us and all different kinds of stuff. But it's a very very interesting in this kind of idea. Um, that presents itself. He said something interesting about rainbows as well. And he said that at the time of Lemuria, if you will, it was very dense. The air was very different and there was a big mist upon the earth that was very thick. And he said in this um, kind of stage of creation, the most advanced people uh, lived in the area where the mist was the thickest. And so he said that when the great flood came, he said it actually um, changed the way in which um, the air density was and that meant that the significance of the rainbow that was seen meant that it was the very first rainbow ever in the world because before the world was just all mist and light wasn't able to refract as it does to create a rainbow. So the more you kind of go into these ancient myths, it's very, very interesting um, talking about uh, these concepts of Atlantis. And I, I call it like an atomic clock, 
if you took Atlantis and looked at the middle of it like a nucleus and there was a, it's kind of like it ends up, it looks like an atom with these rings that move. And then you look into the ancient city of Tripura in the Vedic scriptures, which was essentially made in these concentric rings and the whole thing. There's so much there. But I can talk about that for hours too. So I got to stop somewhere. <laughs> yeah, there, there is no end to the weave. Like you said, the depths yeah. are limitless. So we'll, uh, you know, I'll be in touch and we'll put it on for the calendar for further down the road and we'll have another very pleasant conversation. Just a complete joy to be, you know, be in the space with you. Thank you so much, Veda. You're very yeah. well. My pleasure. Yeah. Lovely to meet you both. And thanks to everybody that watched. Yes, thank you so much, Veda. It's a total joy. The first time I ever heard you, you were on Ryan Peverly's show uh, about a year back, and I was burning leaves next to a next to a sacred lake in my life, and the tears were flowing, and it was such a gift. Uh, and I just want to thank you so much. You are you're a blessing. You are a blessing. I affirm that. <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you so kindly. All right. Good night, everybody. Thanks for being with us and uh, see you next time.